When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that follows the money behind the beautiful game. I'm Kevin Day and I'm joined by Professor Kieran Maguire of Liverpool University, who is the country's leading expert in football finance. Uh, checked in the post for that, Kevin. I, yeah, I don't know why my voice got slightly posher. I don't know why, why that is. How are you? Oh, I'm grand, thank you very much. Yeah. All good, all good. Now, I feel we should uh, make an admission here because many people listening to this will know that we support uh, Crystal Palace and you support another team. Uh, and they'll be saying, well, I wonder what the reaction is to the, the result of the big game at Sullivan's Park. But unfortunately, logistical reasons mean we have to record this just before that big game. Now, I'm going to come out to the opening and admit that. So we are still talking, basically. <laughs> or we could do an alternative opening in which I exult or in which one Kieran's happy. But we'll, we'll stick to the honest truth. Now, because Kieran is an accountant, he wants to suck the joy from everything. So our big question this week is Liverpool who are doing brilliantly, but of course, you know, Kieran's got questions, he's got issues, so we'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about the cost of replacing a manager, as we've lost five in the Premier League already, which is, even by Premier League standards, is pretty astonishing. And, and I'm really looking forward to this, because every now and again, uh, Guy, the producer, yeah, we have a producer, and Kieran will throw in a question, and they won't tell me what the question's about, but this is, a, we're talking about who are the Man United owners' second favourite team. So I thought, I'm not even going to Google that. So, Kieran, Liverpool, obviously... It seems like a nothing but good news story for Liverpool at the moment. The stadium's been expanded. The team are playing, well, actually not brilliant football, but romping away for, with, with the Premier League. But you have some things to discuss. And the first one is who actually owns Liverpool Football Club? Well, Liverpool are owned by uh, Fenway Sports Group um, in, in the US. They're based in Boston. Um, and they've, they've historically had close links with uh, New Balance, but... Uh, not close enough for, for Liverpool to keep the, the contract. Uh, Liverpool have uh, effectively signed over the, the kit manufacturing contract to Nike. And I think what's unusual about the deal is actually that Liverpool are going to get less money than they've got in the current deal as far as the sponsorship. But what they have agreed is that se- instead of getting a 7.5% commission on every shirt sold, they're getting 20% and they've done their sums and they reckon that, that Nike are going to generate more money because Nike have got the contacts and, and Nike are going to go showbiz. So you're going to use uh, you know some of Nike's global superstars to be connected with Liverpool. Um, and on the basis of that, Liverpool feel confident they can make more money out of this. Have you got a figure based on past years of how many shirts approximately Liverpool would sell around the world? Well, Manchester United reckon they sell over a million a year. Uh, now, Liverpool will be 
close behind, I suspect, because um, Liverpool, despite a relative lack of success in terms of winning trophies, still have the the legacy issues from the 1980s. They've got a huge, this huge expat community. Um, I, I'm I'm an external examiner at a, a university in Cyprus, and and half of Cyprus supports Liverpool um, because of of you know, the, those connections for the glory days, um, and and therefore yeah, one of the ways of expressing that is is through buying a Liverpool shirt. So uh, the club's been very successful. And what it's also doing, it's it's being really smart in building up its links with with Asia. Asia is a huge growth market. Mm. Would those shirts be as expensive to buy in Cyprus as they are here? Um, yeah, if you if you go to um, if if you go to the the, the mainline stores, yes, right. uh, you know, there's there's plenty of knockoff places. Okay. But yeah. but you yeah, you know, for many fans, they feel slightly dirty. Uh, if, if you're getting a, if, if you're getting a knockoff shirt, um, and and therefore they'll go for the real thing, and, and they'll pay. Um, and what what you tend to find actually in Europe is, uh, yeah, when, certainly when I, I teach in Germany as well, is is that the, I'm the amazed price, you have time to do this pod. <laughs> um, that uh, the prices in Germany are, are ridiculously high. You're normally paying ninety euros to a hundred euros for a football shirt. Oh, then that's interesting. So I would have, we will talk about the German model of football supportership as being fan friendly but that's not very fan friendly is it are you talking about German clubs here or, or German clubs oh that's interesting so Liverpool have been quite savvy with that so if they're selling a million shirts at probably 50 quid each 20% of 50 millions not bad is it yeah. and how have, how have Liverpool's finances been affected by the the redevelopment of the stadium how is that paid for well um, they, they did borrow money but they borrowed money from from their parents um, and, and that's paid off straight away because Liverpool was generating around about thirty to thirty-five million pounds a year from match day. That's almost doubled because what they've done is, although the capacity of Anfield only went up by about nine thousand, um, a lot of the new seats which are being sold are, are prime pricing, um, and also they're keeping some of those seats back. And I think we discussed this in mm, a recent yeah, yeah. show for for the for the date for the day tripper, um, which is uh, you know, appropriate in Liverpool, really. Um, and therefore, they they are generating a lot of extra money because they they've been so successful at present. They don't know what to do in terms of demand for corporate and hospitality. They're actually having recently that they're, they're farming some of the, the sort of the pre-match entertainment out to venues such as Aintree. And what will happen is you'll have a you know you have a past legend um, sort of be the compare going around talking to the people you know, who are paying top dollar for this and then they're being bussed in to, to Anfield which which is which is okay but I think you know from a from a fan's point of view from a from a if, if you are uh, entertaining clients you, you want to be at Anfield for the whole of the experience and the next step is is to move the Anfield's capacity up to to 60,000 and they've just announced a consultation with the with the surrounding areas for, for people that are living there, local businesses, to to see whether they can get their approval. Because th- there were some issues before w- with this expansion about them buying properties adjacent and then leaving them empty for quite some time, wasn't there? Yes, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, there, there's always going to be a bit of a delay, um, and also people don't like the idea. You know, if, if you, if you know, I, I, I work in Liverpool, there are very proud people. Yeah, of and, course. And, and, and they will say, yeah, I, even as a Liverpool fan, it doesn't mean you can boss me about and, and therefore, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be uh, reluctant to accept compulsory purchase 
Uh, but but Anfield is is spectacular. I, I gave a talk there last week for some uh, for some uh, transfer agents and uh, some directors of football and people of that nature, and, and you know, I was absolutely staggered at the uh, the facilities that they have to offer. And, and this is a way for for clubs to make more money because you know as, as we've discussed before, the football model is really dumb in that you're open for 25 days a year for four hours a day. Um, so what they're doing is is they're, tr- they're trying to make sure that they can they can make it more more lucrative you talked a little last week um about Tramier and how they were sort of not piggybacking as such but sort of um, benefiting from the success of Liverpool and Everton and people who were coming to Liverpool to see those clubs and to see the city and obviously Liverpool is a city of great cultural heritage and people are flooding in to see the Beatles stores and all sorts of stuff would Liverpool as a club would Everton as a club also as well be liaising with with the city, with the cultural things, would they be saying like, if you if you go on a Beatles tour, come to Anfield, there's a ticket available. Is it a sort of symbiotic relationship? Yes, because what you can do, you, you can buy a multi-event ticket. It's, it's similar to where if you go to London, if you go to New York, if you go to San Fran, and, and therefore that there are benefits for everyone. And you know, the the Liverpool FC tour is fantastic. You know, and I'm not a Liverpool fan myself, but I went on it once, and uh, yeah, I was very impressed. But it's 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 the fact that they are using local people with local knowledge. So therefore, you're not getting a, a corporate delivery. Um, it's it's the fact that you're talking, you're, or you're rather, you're listening to a scouser. A, he's supported the club all his life, um, but B, he he knows the stories and the anecdotes, which which would uh, yeah, even make my eyebrows raise. I've always well, I've always been impressed by the fact that George Sefton, the club's PA announcer, he made his debut the same day that Kevin Keegan did. Which I I think most teams would sort of change their club announcer for a more trendy one every every two years and and also he a lot of local bands he will be the first person to play their single over the the tunnel at Liverpool and I I love that connection with with the city and I because I've I've done some stuff with him a couple of times and he's he's fascinating he's brilliant you, you couldn't get a better person to talk to about Liverpool than somebody who's been watching games since 1971 and, and announcing team changes that used to involve Keegan and Toshek and, and then Kenny Dalglish and now you know, Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold. But I, I think it's to Liverpool's credit, as you say, that they do use the local community and tap into the the anecdotal knowledge that they have there. Absolutely. And Liverpool's a fascinating city because it's 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 got a sort of a small town mentality. The sort of the, the centre of Liverpool is, is actually very, very concentrated. Yeah. And by making sure that you don't sell out. And I think that's really important for a club to lose its identity. Mm. You know, Liverpool is a global club, and it's and we, yeah, we were, we're saying that it's, it's going to make the money from the global sales of shirts, but it's still got that local identity, and, and it's very fiercely protected by the fans. Um, it's it's like... It's like Marseille to an extent. You've also got there's always that slight edginess with a city that points outwards rather than than inwards, and there's a very distinct difference between Liverpool and the rest of England, and the same as Marseille and the rest of France. And they kind of tap into that quite well, don't they? I think. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's uh, yeah, it, it's you know, as somebody that works there, it's it's a great place. And I'm talking yeah. to somebody from down south. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a great place culturally, but the, the 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 fanaticism of the football fans is one thing. But also that their knowledge. If, if you know, if I, if I go to a pub pre-match. You know, I'm, I'm not expecting anybody to know anything about Brighton, but they have got encyclopedic knowledge of every club in that division. You could be going to the wrong pub. Everyone in my pub knows exactly what Palace should be doing, buying, playing. And now Jurgen Klopp, obviously, however much they spent on him, he's been cost-effective. But how much did they spend on him? Because no one's ever quite sure 
what they had to hand over to get a manager who's yet to be successful in the Premier League, we have to point out. Well, the, the way that compensation works is that there's, there's, there's three ways of doing this. Either you've got to buy him out of his contract totally, so therefore you'd say, well, what, what, what are his expected wages for the rest of the contract? B, there could be embedded into his contract an, an actual buyout fee. Um, or, or C, it's, it's just on, on, on a sort of a, a function of, of negotiation. You, know, you, you pitch in with a bid, uh, you know, Dortmund would say no, and, and then just like a transfer fee, you reach some sort of halfway house. And presumably, bonus, he'll be getting extra money if you win the Premier League? Oh, massive bonuses, right. yes. Um, and and what, what you quite often find is, is that, um, and this was something which is quite often levelled at Arsene Wenger, that uh, you, you get bonuses for qualifying, for being in the Champions League, for winning that and the other, but quite often the uh, the bonuses owned by the manager and the staff can, can exceed the, the additional money you get from the Premier League and, and from your sponsors. So yeah, the, the, the accusation that was made at Arsene Wenger was that you know, fourth was actually the perfect position for Arsenal to be in each season. Um, and I think they'd be quite happy with fourth in the future. Absolutely. And apart from the money they will they will get for actually winning the Premier League, do they need to win the Premier League? What what are the financial advantages? Will it make a huge difference to their profile, to their finances, if they win the Premier League? Yes, it will because you, you've got you've got your prime sponsors in the in the form of Standard Chartered and presently New Balance, soon to be Nike. But uh, th- so therefore there will be there'll be clauses embedded into those contracts. But what we are seeing is that clubs are going around the world and they are trying to get secondary sponsors who are going to be your official uh, your official snack partner in Malaysia, your official tractor tractor tire partner in in Japan. And you know, these aren't jokes. These, these are genuine I, things. I, that are done. I, I, for a book I'm working on, I had to research the Man United corporate sponsorship and it goes to the third page on the website. It's. You know, the, the Nigerian soft drink sponsor, it, it's incredible. I mean, they, they, there's, they, you can get a Man United coffin. It's, it's ridiculous. And, and, and what do those sponsors all want to be photographed alongside in terms of their product? The Premier League trophy, the Champions League trophy. Yeah. So why have Manchester United sponsorship income? That's flatlined for the last three or four years. Yeah, there's no growth involved there for United. And, and, and that's on the back of them not winning trophies. You know, Edward would claim that we don't need to win football matches to be a commercial success. Well, that's not proven to be the case. Well, it, I know we've talked about this before, but even, even a club with a heritage and a tradition and a history as big as Man United around the world have to rely on winning trophies to get sponsors? Well, to get to get sponsors to pay more money. Oh, and, I see, yeah. So, sure. so uh, yeah, you, you, if, if you are an, an overseas sponsor, to a large extent, unless unless the managing director is a fan of the club, you want to be associated with success. So you look, you look down and you say, well, Manchester United have been like, you know, sixth last season, second the previous season, the fifth and fourth and third. But what have they won during that period? And then you say, well, Liverpool have just won the Champions League. Um, Liverpool are presently, you know, how many points ahead uh, in in the Premier League this season? So, so there's there's uh, that's what you want to be. Everybody wants to be associated with success. Okay, let's let's move on to managers. Um, currently, I'm going to play with people's minds here. Uh, last week, there were five managers, possibly since then. Six people, because as you know, as I admitted, we recorded this a week ago. So today, everybody, looking forward to Christmas, could be six or seven managers out of a job, according to what happens to West Ham. How much does it cost a football club to get rid of a manager? And is it this? 
are they all individual deals or will it be the same at every club or it depend on the manager's salary or what they agreed to at the time? Well, I, I managed to get hold of somebody in the industry and I asked them this question direct. You've got some contacts, haven't you? <laughs> uh. And, and they, they said it's effectively one of three things. Um, it could be um, a, a percentage of salary for the next X years. Mm. For some managers, it will just be 12 months worth. Right. And then for others, it will be you you can effectively you have to buy them out of the rest of the contract um so that's going to cost you that's going to be the sacking fee but if he then finds a job within the next 12 months some of that is clawed back so that would appear to be the position with Pochettino and Spurs so that's why perhaps he's not in necessarily in a hurry yeah you know, what a Mourinho you know, what, how long did he wait before he he took over the job at Spurs oh it was just after 12 months so you know he got 19 million from from being sacked at Manchester United, um, he he got uh, 18 million from being sacked at Chelsea. He got uh, you know, money before um, you know, the first time he was sacked at Chelsea, um, and, and Chelsea have actually spent 83 million pounds um, sacking managers since Abramovich took over, which is uh, which was a good night out that. Isn't it? Yeah, so. for, well, for him, yeah, it's half a night out for him, I imagine. <laughs> but what is? But you would argue economically that it's worked for them, because you know Arsenal kept hold of Wenger for so long, and in that time, Chelsea had three or four, or five different managers, but also won three or four more trophies than than Arsenal did. That they did, but yeah. then if you take a look at how much money they spent on wages and how much money they spent on players uh, during that period. Yeah. Uh, ch- changing a manager, the, the compensation for changing a manager, um, it, it, it appears, you know, 19 million to for Mourinho. But then, if you take a look at the money that Manchester United have spent in the, in the last transfer window with Maguire, Wambasaka, and James, that's 150 million. So mm. that's practically, you know, it's eight, eight times as much. So the, sacking the manager can be that that fee is cheap. It's the fact that when the new manager comes in, he will have identified a players in the existing squad who he wants to shift out. They don't, they don't they don't appeal to him, and b he you know, he, to a certain extent, in the Premier League, there's a, there's a degree of indulgence that the, the owner has just backed the manager by, by appointing him. Therefore, he's got to back him in the transfer market as well, unless he's Mike Ashley. Okay. Now, as we're talking, this is last week, remember? Keep up with what day of the week it is and which week it is and what month. It's Christmas. Uh, we don't know if Pellegrini's still in a job, but there are West Ham fans I know who think West Ham can't afford to sack him because he's on a lot of money. Uh, and also every every football fan thinks they know the intimate details of the manager's contract somehow, but they think it's it's beyond West Ham financially at the moment to to pay him as much money as he would be expecting to get paid to step back from the club. Well, there, there's two issues here. A, a do West Ham have the physical cash to pay him off? Probably not immediately, but they'd probably agree a, a settlement over a, you know you know you get paid every three months or six months, or or he gets kept on the payroll. I mean, um, I I, re, I remember Manchester City at one point. This was back when you know pre pre Sheikh Mansour, Manchester City once had seven former managers on the payroll because they couldn't afford to pay them up. Seven, seven. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, when, when City were was sort of shelling managers like peas, so so that so that's that's an issue. But um, again, I, I was contacted by somebody last week to say there's going to be a managerial um, change at, at a Premier League club but the club can't afford to do that immediately or rather they've got to get approval from the Premier League to sack him because they're being investigated into how close they are to exceeding financial fair play limits. So here we've got oh. here we've got the finance dictating you can't actually sack the manager. So paying a manager off would take them outside the... Yeah. So uh, when a manager resigns in 
I assume he wouldn't expect to get a pair. But I, I would, I'm guessing it's it, it's it's a practical world that there will be chairmen who say to a manager, "Look, I don't want to sack you. Will you resign? Will there be money involved there? Or if if a manager does decide he's he's not the right person for the job, would he still expect to get a a, a little financial bonus when he went? I, I think if if the club is uh, in trouble. Um, and it has not and has not had good fixtures, you know, not good results recently. Then sometimes the manager will will go to the chairman and offer to jump before he's pushed, simply because it looks better. Uh, it looks better on his CV. Um, the, the, but he would still expect some form of payoff because he say, look, it's it's going to cost you. If, if you want to if you want to go and sack me, it's going to cost you two million. I'll 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 walk now, and you give me one and a half. Um, you know, my understanding is unless the manager's contract is, is finished over a particular period of time, mm. then then he'll get nothing. Uh, and the only other time when when a manager won't get a penny uh, at Premier League level is if he's sacked for gross misconduct, as as happened with uh, Gus Poyer at Brighton. So down at League Two level, a club at that level sacks the manager. Would they be looking at? the same proportion of money that a Premier League club would have or are they simply not able to, to pay a manager off of these sacks? No, it, it's highly unlikely because first of all, if, if you are recruiting um, an elite manager, the first thing you're going to do is that you're going to sign him up for a four or five year contract. The nature of um, League One or League Two is that the most a manager could hope for realistically is a 12 month rolling contract. Um, and the, the amount that they're earning tends you know, clearly to be much lower anyway. Um, but you know, whilst there's a lot of you know, focus on managers and managers being sacked, um, you know, if, if you've got a 25-man squad, the chances are the manager's the 26th you know, highest-paid individual at the club. Mm. Uh, so so you know, it, it's an unusual business because normally in any, any hierarchy of the business, um, you know, the higher up the chain you go, the more you get paid. Well, that, that's not the case. You, you've got uh, chief executives of clubs yeah, on less than players and you've got managers on less than players as well. It's never occurred to me that. Hi, I'm Steve Lamarck, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. It's interesting because a lot of Premier League players are only driven by finance and only respect people who get paid as much money as they do. I've spoken to a couple of footballers who said the only way you can get people to respect referees is to pay the referees as much as a Premier League footballer gets or buy them a really flash car. So the player will go, oh, he's, he must be earning a few bobs. So that's, that's quite interesting that the manager could be that low down the, the, the scheme of things. Yeah, uh, but if, if you also think about the, the nature of management, it's a really cutthroat business. Mm. So therefore, supply exceeds demand, um, unless you are at the elite level. So you know, Mourinho's gone into Spurs on 
you know, on X million here. There's, again, various figures have been quoted in the press. There's very few people who's, who are able to command that. If you, if you, and also what we have seen uh, in terms of the changes in the Premier League this season is that there's been a shift from overseas managers to, to English managers. So you've got Nigel Pearson, who's just gone to Watford. You've got Graham Potter at Brighton. You've got Roy at, at Palace and so on. Uh, and, and I think there, there's, there's a return to English managers. And I think we, we as we're quite reserved as a as, as a as a as a nation, and therefore we don't actually expect as much unless we've we've got the the, you know, the baubles to show for it. Well, also financially, if you're sacking an English manager, you're less likely to be sacking his retinue as well, because that's a, at Spurs. If you get rid of Pochettino, you're not only paying him off; you're paying off the ten, twelve people that he brought in with him when he came to Tottenham. Same as if if Pellegrini has gone, he's going he will be taking 10, 12 people with him and they've all got to be paid off as well, presumably. They do, but their contracts tend to be, A, a they're far less lucrative and what they will tend to have is that they will have a three or six month um, earn out on that. Um, um, but because also the nature of football, if uh, if you look to see you know, some, of the, some of these managerial changes, they are looking to recruit assistants from, from other clubs and things of that nature um, and therefore that, that's a very cheap form of recruitment um, because the, the, the number two, it's, he's not a fall guy. Right, let's answer the burning question. The one that I've been anxious to I've, so I didn't even google it because I want this to be my little pre-Christmas present who are the Manchester United owners second favourite club Manchester City okay wasn't the answer I was expecting <laughs> and the reason for <laughs> that is uh, a couple of weeks ago we, we looked at the takeover or the investment in Manchester City by Silver Lake yeah um, and that that was at far higher of value than anybody anticipated I, I'd, I'd done some valuations myself um, you know, and I, I thought that City were probably the most valuable club in the Premier League, but not to the extent. So, twenty-four hours. Look at the twenty-four are you, are you hours. You admitting to something close to a mistake there? Well, close to, but uh, not. No, they're still. They're st- okay. they're, I, I said they're number one, and they're number one. Yeah. Nobody else. Nobody else believed me at the time. Right. Um, but if you take a look at what happened to Manchester United in the in the New York stock market, the value of Manchester United increased by three hundred million pounds within minutes of the announcement going through because everybody recalculated their sums. Well, if City are going to be worth $4.5 billion, Manchester United, which is currently worth $2.7, we're immediately going to increase their value to over three. But United, no one cashed in on that though, did they? Well, somebody must have cashed in because share prices only go up if people are buying the shares. So therefore, if, so- if somebody is buying the shares, somebody must be selling the shares and will have cashed in. Okay, that's interesting. Well, I was about to say it's almost uncanny because our first reader's question is about the stock market. Well, I've just realised we've got a producer who puts these things together. So it probably is, there probably is a plan. I was just thinking, it's an amazing coincidence that we've actually got a question about the stock market and we've talked about Oh, brilliant. But we have. Um, as you know, we, we thrive on your questions here uh, at Price of Football Podcast, so please do keep sending them in. So William has asked a question. Basically, how do clubs benefit from floating on a stock exchange? We know Man United have done it, Celtic, Roma, Juve have done it. Is it common? Is it clever? It was very sexy thing to do about uh, twenty to twenty-five years ago. Millwall did it, Sheffield United did it, Millwall did it, Hearts did it. There were yeah, oh, okay. o- other clubs did it because they thought, well, if you go into the stock market, that allows you to to go to people and say, give us some money. 
Um, and, you know, and a football club is always in search of money. But then uh, there were two issues. First of all, the stock market regulations are very severe in, in terms of what you've got to report back, in terms of compliance with, with uh, you know, individual yellow book rules and things of that nature. So that your compliance costs were more significant and you're having to give out more information and you're having to give out that information quicker. Secondly, the nature of the, the investors in the stock market is that they are silver-tongued lawyers and accountants and bankers and so on. And they've got no emotional investment in Mill. They've got no emotional investment in Hearts or Sheffield United mm. or, or Spurs. You know, Spurs were on the market as well. Um, and therefore, they say, well, if, if we're going to invest, we want a return on our investment. Now, that return can either come through you paying us dividends. Football clubs can't do that because they lose money. Or the value of the shares goes up. But unless you're winning stuff and unless you're announcing amazing uh, you know, sponsorship deals and broadcasting deals, you're not going to be the beneficiaries of that. So, you know, I, I'm, I was born in the Elephant and Castle. You know, you know, Millwall was effectively my local club and my, my uncle Terry was one of the top boys at, uh, at, at Millwall many years ago. Um, so, you know, I've, I've got history at that club um, and, and financially it was never in a position to deliver in I, terms I, of... I, I, I've been waiting to get a word in edgeways, but I couldn't because my jaw had dropped too far. What was your Uncle Terry thinking, letting you be a Brighton fan? Well, it wasn't. You it were was... born in the Elephant and Castle and you end up supporting those Labrador-walking middle-class... What? It's My, my mum wouldn't let me go to uh, the old Coldblow Lane with my Uncle uh, Tell. It was, because, ter- it was a terrifying place. Because, Probably, uh, because of your Uncle Terry. Because <laughs> my, my Uncle Terry, he, he, he had some naughty friends, according to my mum, and she was uh, worried about him. I could never understand at Millwall how we've got exactly the same accent as they have. We look the same as they do, but they always knew we weren't one of them. So you weren't daft enough to wear a scarf. You'd no. scuttle in, but they just, they just sensed somehow <laughs> that we weren't one of them. A, I, I, I did not know this. So, so if Uncle Terry was still with us... Uh, and Millwall were to float on the stock market. Could could Uncle Terry buy ten shares? Is that how it works? Is, is... It, it could. And, and the thing is, yeah, it's, it's only the likes of my Uncle Terry, you know, God rest his soul, who who would have uh, bought those shares. And you, know, you stick the share certificate on on your on your toilet wall because you never got a dividend from them because because clubs in the lower divisions don't make money. But would he have any? Say, would he be able to go to shareholders? Because you, you know, this is a world I don't understand or, yeah. or know much about. Would he be able to go to? Shareholders, you occasionally see on the news a, a company that's in trouble and angry shareholders are gesticulating. And would he be able to go to shareholders' meetings? Would he get ten shares worth of vote? He would, yes. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the, the, na- the nature of being a, a publicly quoted company is that you must have what's referred to as an annual general meeting, and then all the shareholders can turn up. And at the front of that, there will be, you know, there'll be the board and there'll be the manager. So, for example, Celtic, it, it's 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 a publicly listed company. It had its shareholders meeting recently, um, and Neil Lennon and uh, you know, the board were there, and and they were answering questions from 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 the from the investors. But what they didn't say was, we're not going to give you any money. Right. So if, if Uncle Terry and his naughty mates, if they buy 10 shares each, could they get enough of them together to actually influence? I mean, say Uncle Terry and his naughty mates suddenly got 30% of the shares in Mural. Do they, do they then become a sort of major voice in the, in the club? Or Yeah, if, 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 and that's the issue, if there's enough of them. But we're talking about companies which have got millions upon millions of shares. So therefore, you know, Uncle Terry and his mates, even if they've got... A, you know, ten shares each, and there's a few hundred of them. They're, they're going to end up with 0.01 percent 
of the shares. Right. And then you've got situations such as Manchester United, where Manchester United have got two classes of shares. You've got the A shares, which, which you or I could buy right. in New York. That carries one vote each. And you've got the B shares, which are owned only if your name is Glazer, and they're worth 10 votes each. Oh, Therefore, they've got all the power. Is that a standard practice for other companies outside football? It is, because right. if you look at Facebook, if you look at Google, which is now called Alphabet, and, and other companies, especially the tech companies, it's, it's allowed them to raise lots of money, whilst the, the, sort of the figurehead, you know, the likes of Mark Zuckerberg, they still have all of the controlling power. Right. And we've talked in recent weeks about fan-owned clubs, but that's, they, they're not clubs that have got people that have got shares in the club. That was, that's a different model, isn't it? Fan ownership is a different model to... That's, that's right. I mean, yeah. A fan-owned club, you know, the likes of Exeter, who have done absolutely superbly, and yeah. we, we, we've seen other clubs, done really, they've done really well as well. They will have shares, but as, as a private company, you're talking about perhaps having hundreds of shares or just a few thousand. And um, as you know, I keep a list of, of every football club's of shares and shareholders and everything. You know, some, sometimes I'll get the list of shareholders and there will be hundreds of them. I'll go through and I'll, I'll tick them off one by one. I, I like to think you read them on the toilet. I like to think on Boxing Day, that's how you'll escape from the family. But I'll just go and have a little sit down and read through some share. But from what you were saying, and I'm picking up a sort of negative vibe, but it doesn't sound from what you're saying that this is a model that clubs will be looking to do in the future to float on the stock exchange. No, no. The only thing that could potentially cause that to happen is if we move to the European Super, Super League where you've got this closed, uh, closed, no promotion, no relegation model, and then all of those clubs are making huge sums of money, then potentially that there are benefits in listing on the market because you'll be able to generate extra funds. Now, I know that's a coincidence that you mentioned European Super League because Guy's a very good producer, but even he couldn't manipulate you to do this. Because our final question is from Gareth, because we're, n- we're not just about English football here and we are going to have a Scottish football special coming up soon but I'm also fascinated to compare European models and other models to, to us and Gareth's asked a, well, it's actually a really good question he's a Northampton fan but he's asked how Athletic Bilbao managed to compete in, in La Liga considering they pride themselves on being the Basque club and only recruiting people from that region I've always loved the history of Athletic Bilbao and the fact that they, they have an English name out of deference to their, their first manager. So they're not Atletico, they are Athletic. But that's a really interesting question on the face of it, isn't it? Because they're, they're up against some financial giants, and yet they managed to, to, to th- without actually winning many things, they still managed to thrive in the, in the top level of Spanish football. And they, I think they're one of only three clubs that have never been relegated from La Liga. Um, along you know, with, with the two others of who we need not mention. Yeah. Um, the, the thing about Spanish football is that you've got three clubs who have got huge sums of money coming in, and then you've got everybody else that's competing for the rest. So the um, third one is Atletico, presumably. That's right. Yeah, okay. um, and um, as far as Bill Bowers, because I think they're around about 15th in the league at yeah. present. They're not having the greatest of seasons. But what they've been very good at doing is because there is this incredible bond with the local population, is that players will want to there is pride um, in being recruited and coming through the academy there and that's allowed them to sell on players at a profit so so financially Bilbao have actually been uh, very well uh, run um, and it actually works in their favour because it, it restricts their ability to sign players from, from elsewhere um, and therefore you know, they've got the players going out on profit okay. but they're not spending large sums of money on players coming in and I'm guessing that the nature of uh, cultural identity and politics in that area is such that there won't be many Bilbao fans who, who are saying, "Let's get rid of this stupid Basconi policy. Let's win something." They're, that that's the 
the selling point, and that's the reason they support the club, is because it represents their their identity. So the mere existence of that sort of defiant region is is better than winning trophies, I'm guessing. That's right, and also has a very positive impact upon attendances, because you're not just going to watch a football match, you're going to preserve your local identity and, and show two fingers up against the you know the the people in madrid uh, just for the benefit of those listening at home kieran actually stuck two fingers up there just he's acting out um thank you very much to those listening at home uh this has been a dap dip production we recorded the price of football at the comedy store here in the heart of soho in london's west end and uh remember if you've enjoyed us please put those reviews hopefully if i don't in fact let's not say reviews there's five star reviews don't be putting two-star reviews up on wherever it is you listen to our podcast on. Please put those five-star reviews on the podcast because it does help us become more successful and then we can bring even more stories to you. The price of football. I'm so full of